Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for April 7th, 2020. I've got another coronavirus-related interview for you guys today. Uh, I'm going to be joined via Skype in a few moments by David Adler. David is Policy Leader Fellow at the School of Transnational Governance. He's the Policy Coordinator of the Democracy in Europe Movement. He's a Coordinator for the Green New Deal for Europe. Uh, he also does some work for Data for Progress, and he's a two-time returning champion. Uh, savvy regular listeners will recall uh, David was on here not that long ago actually just a few weeks back uh, along with Daniel Bessner to talk about a piece that they had written uh, about the dollar and the dollar's prominence in global finance and what that does to sort of U.S. hegemony around the world. Today he's here to talk about a much different topic. Well, I don't know how Maybe it's not much different, but it is different. Uh, today, he, uh, David's going to be talking with me about the European Union uh, and the European Union's performance, good or bad, uh, with respect to the coronavirus pandemic and the current crisis. He's written a piece uh, along with Jerome Roos uh, from the London School of Economics that appeared in The Guardian uh, several days ago. I will link to, to it in the show description. It's called If Coronavirus Sinks the Eurozone, the Frugal Four Will Be to Blame. Uh, the Frugal Four being Germany, the Netherlands, Austria, and Finland, uh, who are arguing against a Eurozone-wide response, economic response, to the uh, challenges posed by the the coronavirus and by the lockdowns and, and all the economic damage that that's done. Uh, we'll talk about this in more detail, but they're sort of standing in the way of a, uh, of a solution that would help kind of, uh, you know, as with many things about the EU, there's a haves and have nots uh, sort of dynamic playing out. And the haves don't want to uh, take the measures or take some measures that would, that would help the have nots like floating, uh, uh, bonds, euro-wide bonds, uh, to help poorer nations kind of recover from, uh, from what's happened here. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, first, we're going to talk about the actual uh, immediate response to the health crisis of the coronavirus before we get into the, uh, the ways that Europe is uh, <laughs> aligning to screw up the economic response. We're going to talk about uh, how Europe has responded to the health crisis um, and put that in the context of the challenges that the EU uh, has been facing. Brexit, uh, going all the way back to the Greek debt crisis, migration. Um, and, and, you know, my question to David is going to be, uh, is the EU basically validating its critics in the way that it's responding to these these various crises? And we'll uh, we'll get in a, a little bit to what's happened in Hungary, where uh, Viktor Orban has sort of uh, taken advantage. It's a crisisunity, as they say on The Simpsons, uh, has taken advantage of the situation to uh, accrue to himself uh, indefinite 
basically dictatorial powers, emergency powers that allow him to rule by decree uh, with really no checks. Um, and and what response the EU could have to that, if anything, uh, it's really quite limited, uh, frankly. Uh, and if we have time uh, toward the end of the interview, we'll get into a more general uh, discussion of what would it look like if the EU actually functioned better than it does from a from a left wing perspective? I mean, we hear a lot of the right wing critiques of the European Union, but there are left wing, strong left wing critiques of the European Union. Uh, and so I'd like to, you know, maybe talk to David a little bit about what a, a better organized and better kind of run European Union would look like uh, if if such a thing is even possible. Maybe the answer is it would look like nothing because there would be nothing. There is uh, no way to get it to do that. I don't know. Well, David will have some thoughts on that, I hope. Uh, as always, uh, lately, uh, I want to say I hope all of you are safe and uh, healthy uh, and that you stay that way. I hope you practice the social distancing that's uh, uh, required to sort of keep the this pandemic at bay. Uh, but if you or any any of your loved ones, anyone you know has has contracted uh, COVID-19, then uh, you have my best wishes for a full and complete recovery. Uh, with that said, it's sort of become uh, <laughs> something uh, I feel like I have to say every one of these episodes, but it, it is uh, you know, it is important to say, I think. Um, and with that said, I'm going to uh, get David on the Skype here and we'll start the interview. Okay, I am joined by David Adler. Uh, as I said in the intro, David is the policy coordinator at the Democracy in Europe movement. Uh, he's campaign coordinator for the Green New Deal for Europe and uh, many other things I've already mentioned in the show opening. I won't uh, repeat them all. Uh, David, thanks for being on the program. It's great to be back in these uh, perilous times. Yes, I also mentioned that you're a two-time returning champion, so I'm... Uh, <laughs> Very pleased you agreed to come back and do this again. Um, you have written a piece uh, with Jerome Roos uh, a few days ago, actually. We're a little bit uh, behind the times here, but uh, called uh, for The Guardian. Uh, the, the headline is, if coronavirus sinks the Eurozone, the frugal four will be to blame. Um, and we'll get into the, the main kind of thrust of that piece, which is uh, the group of miserly euro states that are holding up financial relief uh to most of the eurozone amid uh a pandemic that is uh, having a huge economic impact as well as a huge health impact before we get into the economic impact though i want to uh uh you know one of the stories i think uh, that people are going to talk about when this is over. It's not maybe you know in in people's faces right now, but when it, when the pandemic kind of subsides and people are looking back at at what happened, I think one of the things they're going to talk about is how did the European Union respond to the health crisis first, and then the economic crisis, uh, kind of you know as the second level of things. Um, and I wanted to ask you to sort of gauge how the EU has responded in terms of, um, you know, working collectively, helping the nations that have been, the member states that have been especially hard hit, 
um, you know, diverting resources. We've hear, you know, you hear uh, countries, one of the first things, uh, you know, a lot of European countries did was they closed their borders, which is very, you know, uh, kind of anti the ethos of the EU. Uh, we've heard stories about some member states kind of hoarding supplies or even diverting shipments of supplies that were meant for other member states. You hear about Italy, which has been, you know, sort of especially hard hit, appealing outside the EU for assistance to China and Russia. Um, but the response we're, we get told, I mean, there's been sort of this series of uh, comments from high up EU officials, from, you know, uh, leaders in Germany and France that, uh, well, we, we had a rough patch early on, but, but the EU has really kind of, uh, you know, come on and responded better over the last couple of weeks. What's your sense of, of how the EU has responded overall? So as you mentioned, uh, there's two different levels along which this crisis is happening. You know, the big story, whether it's in Europe or anywhere else, has been the return of the nation states, right? Okay, globalization may have dissolved these borders, but all of a sudden we're seeing the nation state really come back into full force. And the question of national state capacity become incredibly important because at the end of the day, where we are now in terms of the balance between different countries and the way they fit into some global framework, it remains the responsibility of these national governments to be delivering a health response, uh, to be investing in healthcare, to be investing in economic recovery. So we're seeing that fortify. And just like you mentioned, the fact that the borders are coming up and have come up, you know, ripping out basically the heart uh, of the European Union's basic convention around the freedom of movement, which, as you mentioned, is such a sacred right here in Europe, of course, tied to the freedom of movement for, for goods and capital. But the way in which those borders were immediately erected in response to this uh, shows not only the level of kind of creative policy making that's been required by this crisis, but the importance of national governments in crafting that response um, and the burden they carry in doing so. Now, that I think is a universal experience or a global experience uh, as the coronavirus has spread. However, you know there is no zone in the world as thoroughly integrated as the European Union, uh, economically, as well as politically and socially. And within that European Union, okay, so in the European Union, you have you know, tw formerly 28 states, Britain left, now we have 27 states in the European Union. There's within that union, a currency zone called the Eurozone of these countries that share the same currency. Now, within the context, I should say, within this sort of Russian dolls, uh, kind of configuration, it is not possible, no matter the burden, the shared burden of all these countries in the world, to be the, the primary carers and first responders economically and medically, even though the countries are supposed to be doing that themselves, they are not capable of designing this response uh, for themselves, given the structures and constraints that are built into the Eurozone and built into the European Union more generally. That is about how your money gets spent, how you find money, how you generate debt. I mean, these are all questions that the United States simply doesn't have to face. One, because it has, it's a country with its own currency, right? It has the sovereign power to print and print and print money. We've seen the US Federal Reserve print something like $90 billion a day in order to finance both a domestic economic response as well as open up uh, these swap lines around the world. So that's one. 
uh, and two, because the dollar is, is very, very powerful. Now, we don't have to get into the complications around wh whether the, you know, the dollar vis-a-vis -vis the euro, because the euro is also a pretty stable currency. But the question is, within the eurozone, how are these different countries that are fundamentally bound together going to respond to this crisis? Uh, using which fiscal instruments? How is the debt going to be generated? These questions that I kind of at first blush seem technical and certainly will likely be resolved technocratically are quite fundamental. And they're fundamental because you only have to look at the last 10 years. At the last time we had to resolve these questions in the course of the double crisis that Europe faced. First, we were hit by the 2009 crisis and the collapse of Wall Street that hit everywhere. And then that morphed, evolved, and kind of uh, twisted into a sovereign debt crisis, the resolution of which would ultimately trap Italy, the, the so-called pigs, Italy in, in a, a decade of severe stagnation and recession, Greece in economic depression, uh, and Spain as well into a kind of severe stagnation. So these countries, we just went through this. And so the questions about how we resolve uh, the fiscal response, how we design the frameworks by which money will be generated and then invested in these countries is fundamental to the survival uh, not only of people, because it's about how we invest in healthcare, but to the Eurozone itself. Because if they cannot find a framework for binding these countries together within the framework of a currency union, these are countries that share the same currency. It's like if California and Virginia were fighting over what to do about the dollar, you know? Um, if they can't do that, it's unlikely the Eurozone will survive. And so kind of uh, go into, I mean, you know, your piece is in response to uh, a decision last month by, uh, again, you talk about the frugal four, which are mm -hmm. Germany, the Netherlands, Austria, and Finland, uh, who are holding up a plan to issue a new kind of common Eurozone bond uh, to help provide some support to, again, you know, places that have been really hard hit, Spain, Italy, um, places w that were in some economic difficulty beforehand, as you noted, uh, but have been also kind of harder hit by the, the pandemic than um, many other parts of Europe. Talk about yeah, the, what, sure. what was so, proposed and what happened. Yeah, so okay. So the, the problem is that after the last 10 years that we just went through uh, of se severe crisis and stagnation, different countries within the European, uh, within the Eurozone that share the same currency, they have different what's called fiscal absorption capacity. So some of them have low debt levels, like the, so they're called the frugals because they famously keep low debt levels, right? They are very spendthrift. Germany, the Dutch are particularly um, vile when it comes to f flouting their, you know, spendthriftiness, despite the fact that they basically run this global racket for tax havens, you know, funneling dark money out of the rest of the world and into their banks. But they, the, the, the public image of them is as very responsible, you know, um, savers. Whereas the South, are these profligate spenders, they're corrupt, they don't know how to run an efficient and effective state. Now, we could get into a long discussion about why the austerity imposed after the sovereign debt crisis in 2010, 2011, 2012, forced these countries into a kind of doom loop, whereby austerity forced them, forced them into further stagnation that then forced them to have a, a stronger response, et cetera, et cetera, where requiring a high budget surplus condemned these countries. But the point is that they still have these high levels of debt. 
The problem with having high levels of debt is it's self-reinforcing because if your levels of debt are high, then if I'm, if I'm going to offer to lend you money, then I'm like, mm, okay, I'll lend you money, but I don't really trust that you're very trustworthy. I don't really trust your ability to pay this back. So I'm going to charge you a high premium on the debt that I'm going to give you, right? On, on you being, uh, as, as a creditor, that's what I'm going to do. And that's measured, of course, in the yield of your bonds. So if the yields go up, that means it's more expensive for Italy to service its debt. The problem with that, this is a self-reinforcing cycle, is if my debt's already high, then I have to pay even more to bring on more debt, and all of a sudden I'm trapped in this problem where the debt's getting higher and higher and higher, then the frugals are demanding I do more reforms, more structural adjustment, more austerity to try to bring those debt levels down, which is not possible. So the nine, the nine countries, Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal, and even France, and some others, came around this proposal for a so-called corona bond, or a euro bond. And that was for all the countries in the eurozone to jointly issue debt. But what this means is that the debt that they're making isn't Italian debt, or French debt, or Spanish debt. It's owned jointly across the eurozone. So it's not going to have that centrifugal force that is created by failing to share the debt burden. Namely, by having some yields stay low because you know we're frugal, of course we can pay our debts, and some get out of control, leading to a sovereign debt crisis that we've literally just went through. That was a proposal on the table, and of course, what did the frugal say? So the way this usually goes in German, in Europe, is that Germany is just too polite to say it itself. It no, it's already the bogeyman; it doesn't want to get in further trouble, so it trots out the Dutch to go say to go say no, you know, wag its finger on behalf of the Germans. And the Dutch dutifully said, no, we refuse to have risk sharing. This is the perception of what this is, risk sharing across the Eurozone. That would amount to a transfer union. Effectively, it would amount to our dear Dutch savers who have worked and scrimped and saved, giving money to the profligate Southerners who failed to do the same. And it's your fault if you did not save for a rainy day. And it's our, we should enjoy the fruits of our hard work. You know, and I get tweets after the piece I wrote being like, you know, excuse me, I'm a 55-year-old Dutchman working my ass off. Our retirement age got extended to 67. Why should I pay for the pension of a Frenchman, of a French train driver, who uh, gets to retire at 52? I'm not going to pay for that. So we're seeing all these old stereotypes come back and flourish. And the question in front of Europe's policymakers, as I see it, is do we kowtow to actually existing prejudice that runs through the Eurozone between the so-called frugals and the profligates, between the North and South, creditors and debtors, Greece and Germany, et cetera? Do we bend the knee to that and say, you know what? The politics of this are too toxic now. We have to accommodate them lest we try to create something like a corona bond. Or do you take the more courageous step of saying, you know what? These politics are themselves the product of the way we have made debt in the past. And unless we create an instrument that can neutralize those centrifugal forces, can actually unify the Eurozone, we are condemned to repeat those stereotypes, condemned to further uh, inflame the North-South conflict that already is riven through the Eurozone. So that's kind of the stakes that we're at. Now that can get dramatized. We like to say in DM25, I, I, so wrote, I wrote a plan uh, around the same time with my colleague Yanis Varoufakis, where we basically said, look, either the Eurozone is going to unify on these proposals, or it's going to disintegrate. Doesn't mean the Eurozone will cease to exist. Doesn't mean the European Union will cease to exist. It means it will broadly become irrelevant. 
people will no longer have faith in this in these institutions. They'll no longer invest their time, energy, and political capital in them, and they'll become you know just shackles. So this is what what's on the table. To go quickly back to your initial point about okay, the EU is saying they're doing it right. They're certainly doing it better than they did before. You are right to to point out that when this started, the EU was committing some of the worst. Uh, so-called sick and dying neighbor policies we've ever seen, you know, essentially pilfering masks and medical supplies uh, and ensuring that they try to, you know, resist resist solidarity at all costs in order to provide for national provision. They've gotten a bit better at that. And as it is expected, Trump has, you know, officially come first in terms of the sick and dying neighbor kind of pirate politics of thieving uh, masks out of, uh, you know, airport hangers to redirect back to the United States. Yes. So they've gotten better at this. Um, but this is what the EU does best. The, the EU does the fudge, and specifically Angela Merkel, does the fudge with greater uh, mastery than, than anyone in the world. Oh, we're, we'll do this. We'll make these emergency funds available to you. Uh, we'll create new lines of credit. You know, the Germans now are pushing out this stuff about, oh, no, we, we care about solidarity. We're going to make these new instruments, you know. Right. But what they say is, you know, we'll give you loans. And any thinking person, and when I say any thinking person, I'm including Giuseppe Conte, the prime minister of Italy, who came out yesterday and said, hell no. I see what you're saying to me. We are not going to accept loans from the so-called European stability mechanism. So if euro bonds, I just spoke about them, are the way we would like to see the European Union approach this question, solidaristic, unified, uh, neutralizing those centrifugal forces. The other option on the table is to mobilize the so-called ESM, European Stability Mechanism that was created in 2012, this loan facility, that creates these synthetic bonds. So instead of it being jointly issued, it's a little piece owned by the Italians, a little piece owned by the French, a little piece owned by the Greeks, a little piece owned by the Germans. And that contains the seeds, those synthetic bonds, contains the seeds of this fragmentation, right? It, 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 because it's the, the debt level is one-to-one, -one, every euro I take up is one more euro of my national debt, then you, know, you still have these same centrifugal forces. And the Germans say, we don't wanna be on the hook for how much the Italians are gonna have to spend. And what we say is, this is not charity. We're not asking you to spend on the Italians because it's a decent thing to do, although it's also the decent thing to do. We're saying, do this in your own self-interest. Because unless the Eurozone can actually unify, uh, this is going to keep happening. And the Germans, who are they going to sell cars to? I mean, they'll be screwed too. So uh, they want to, the Germans are now pushing hard on this ESM thing. Giuseppe Conte gave a speech last night where he basically said, F you, I refuse to accept a, a, a dime from the ESM. Very courageous move from his part, which has been condemned very naturally as, quote, unhelpful. Always the word the European Union uses. <laughs> it's very unhelpful. Um, so those are the stakes. You know, and now it's kind of, we've kind of gotten down to these two main approaches. Eurobond or ESM, where ESM is like, we're still doing something, but the thing you're doing is going to make the, problem, the fundamental problem worse. I was struck by, uh, I think it was uh, maybe a, a couple of days after the, um, you know, the Germans and the Dutch kind of shot down this idea for uh, Corona bonds. Uh, the, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von, von der Leyen, uh, you know, delivered this or, you know, released this letter to... Um, I think it was to Italy primarily, you know, that said, uh, we're sorry that the, the EU and its institutions uh, weren't more kind of haven't been more helpful and, uh, you know, kind of struggled out of the gate. But we're still not going to do anything to help you. Like, we're still only going to give you uh, this kind of uh, loan mechanism to try and rebuild your economies. It was sort of like 
mind-boggling. It was like a sorry, not sorry, almost. I mean, it, it was so such a strange uh, letter. I wondered if you kind of had clocked that as well. Yeah, sure. No, totally. I mean, you know, I think it's crucial at this moment as this virus go, spreads into the global south to realize that still there's a kind of privileged position here that all these zero zone member states have, right? Uh, you know, they are, this is not South Africa that can be devastated by a balance of payments crisis because of the ways in which their currency is being massively screwed against the dollar in the course of this crisis, right? Europe's not in danger of uh, investments being evacuated from their economies like that's happening in emerging markets around the world. So there's still a degree of, uh, of privilege. It's not the U.S. exorbitant privilege, as we spoke about last time I was on the show, but there's a privilege uh, of, of being in the Eurozone that is undeniable. So I don't want to make it sound more dire than it's likely to be in terms of the economic response. But, you know, fundamentally, the, the, you know, what, what von der Leyen is talking about, it's, it's, that, it's that fudge. Like, there's going to be help for, for Italy, but is it going to be a poison chalice in the medium term? That's the question. Because the virus itself is step zero of this journey, right? Step one is then the, the snap depression that we're all entering, right? And then step two through 15 are the economic recovery um, and investment in, in new public health systems that's going to be associated with, uh, with recovering from coronavirus, right? So, you know, what they're offering is like, yeah, sure, you know, we'll, we'll help you. I mean, a loan shark doesn't break your knees before they give you the money, they do it later. And that's the question. You know, why does Conte say we don't want your money? He's literally going to, to, to Frankfurt and saying, you know, fuck your ESM, basically. And why is he doing that when there's, there are clearly needs for money? Because he knows that this is a slog uh, and that these things are toxic. He's not going to touch this money the same way that a lot of emerging markets now are, are asking themselves, do we want, you know, when you have David Malpass, president of the World Bank, saying we're going to attach stringent structural adjustment conditionality to the loans that we're making, you know, you're thinking, God, I'm screwed either way. You know, I need the money, but what are the conditions going to be attached to this? Now, the, the smarter minds at the EFT will say things like, uh, well, Gideon Rackman literally said this today in, in his editorial. He said, um, you know, I support the ESM, but of course we need to change the conditionality. You know, no troika, or even the Germans would say this, no troika, light conditionality, but that's, that's beside the point. What they're still saying is, you know, you take this money and then you pay it back. And you're going to have to pay it back. How are you going to pay it back? Structural adjustment, you know? Like, it, it, you'd have to be tremendously naive not to read that and read between the lines and see, oh, yeah, they're going to ask us to do the same thing as they've been asking us for for 10 years, these growth-friendly reforms. And what are they? Extend the retirement age, lower the pension, slash minimum wages, uh, lower taxes for corporations. All this stuff that is built into the kind of European Union, single market, hyper-globalized view of what is good for capitalism. I want to take this kind of into sort of a discussion of the politics and the, like the power relationships uh, in Europe. And as you said earlier uh, in the interview, th this is... Uh, just sort of the latest in, uh, you know, a series of crises, L you know, literally kind of the economic aspect of this uh, is a repeat on a, you know, grander, maybe grander scale uh, of the Greek debt crisis. Uh, the EU has gone through uh, this, you know, so-called, I guess, migration crisis, 
Um, it's gone through Brexit. You know, a lot of things that have kind of uh, pulled at the fabric of uh, of the European Union. And I, my my question is, a lot of attention gets paid to uh, reactionary governments kind of coming to power in places like Poland, Hungary, uh, you know, there was a, a risk of a reactionary government coming to power in Italy that now seems to maybe have temporarily subsided. Uh, the rise of far-right parties in Spain and France, you know, elsewhere, uh, you know, sort of in response to uh, things like migration, in response to, you know, criticisms uh, that these parties have of the European Union. What strikes me as I'm sort of listening to you describe the relationship here is that um, a lot of the policies, the, the kind of Eurosceptic policies or ideas that these far-right parties, um, you know, get so much attention for, kind of, uh, you know, nationalism over globalism, uh, us versus them in a sense, you know, no, there's no sense of solidarity. Those seem almost like baked into the pie already in Germany and and the Netherlands, right? I mean, it's sort of there's a sense of like we're not in this together, and in fact we're better than you, and we shouldn't have to uh, lift a finger or you know kind of risk anything to help you guys. And I wonder, uh, you know, when a, when somebody like Matteo Salvini or uh, even Viktor Orban, you know, when when these guys kind of come to power and and insult or, or criticize the EU um, and kind of reject, you know, solidarity. Is it, do you think that, that they're sort of mirroring something that's already happening among the sort of haves, but it doesn't get talked about that way, if that makes sense. It's sort of, mm -hmm. that's just sort of the, the normal discourse. But when it's talked about, you know, when it's the have-nots that are saying these things, that's when it gets a lot of attention. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating time to look at the politics of the European Union. The last month, you know, last month, I think we had two, we had two different events that, that will be remembered by historians who study this period. The first was Viktor Orban's sweeping legislation to give himself new emergency powers, almost unlimited emergency powers, uh, voted in by a, you know, a parliament that he had shaped with his own hands and uh, approved by a judiciary that he had certainly had a hand in, uh, in shaping. So one was the consolidation of an authoritarian regime, a competitive authoritarian regime inside the European Union. And the other was the rejection of the euro bond. These things which look on their face like apples and oranges are fundamentally linked. And they're fundamentally linked for exactly the mechanism that you spoke about, which is that Euroscepticism, at least in the last couple of years, especially in the post-Brexit years, oof, hit the ear at a kind of awkward angle. It sounded ignorant, racist. It sounded out of step with the emotion of economic recovery that, the, you know, especially the leaders of the European Union were very proud, patting themselves on the back. Um, when I say leaders of the European Union, I don't, I don't just mean the head of the commission and the Troika. I also mean someone like Tsipras, who also had a lot of motivation as the prime minister of Greece to, to say, okay, we're recovering. Those are years are over. The crisis is over. The crisis is over. 
Um, there was a shared interest in doing that. And then when Brexit happened and it looked like this big fracasso and no one wanted to be associated with it, it began to wear really thin. Now, what's interesting about what's happening now is Giuseppe Conte is not a populist. I mean, Pedro Sanchez uh, in Spain is not a populist. The people who signed this proposal for Corona bonds, the people who are standing up and saying, we refuse to accept PCSM loans, these are not populists that can be written off by the establishment as Syriza once was and as Podemos was as well. And certainly as Cinque Stelle and even Le- Salvini's Lega here in Italy uh, were. So we're seeing this, um, I think, a much deeper conflict uh, here because it's pitting, I think, establishment against establishment. Certainly, you know, South against North, you might say that, but I think it's a bit more robust than that and coming from different political strains. I mean, what, did, what does a, a neoliberal like Macron have in general with, uh, uh, you know, a, le- a left government in, in, in Spain and with a kind of confused techno-populist government in, in Italy and a, and a firmly right-wing government in Greece? You know, what, what's the thread there? Um, and so we come back to this relationship between Orban's competitive authoritarianism and the fate of the Eurozone, which is if this logic of your skepticism is going to get so deeply entrenched and we're going to see, you know, the Euro crisis didn't go anywhere, right? The fund, the, the stru- and, you know, if you look at the structural determinants, the structural factors that first gave rise to that Euro crisis and then sustained it, you know, they didn't go anywhere. The European Central Bank was throwing money at the problem, throwing money at the problem, 60 billion a month, throwing money at the problem to kind of barely keep this European economy on life support. Last year was already heading into recession, not in the South, even in Germany where manufacturing had dropped off a cliff. So you had these problems that were festering already for 10 years. And now shit hits the fan and the question becomes, okay, are we going to unify together or are we going to be riven apart? And when, I, when you talk about being riven apart, it's, it's where everyone can see light as day, not coming from the crazy corners of the populist right, coming from all over the place. There is a fundamental rift that solidarity only goes so far. And once that really sets in, it's the you know, perfect stage for an Orban to come and take power and say, Brussels is not your friend. The Eurogroup is not your friend. These fora for convening and consensus formation, these are not helpful, productive. You know, we should, rec- sovereignism starts to really make a lot of sense. So, you know, when we talk about the disintegration of the Eurozone, uh, which the, they barely staved off a decade ago through very, very creative crisis fighting, very creative policy making. We're not seeing that same spirit. Perhaps it's because they don't see this yet as an existential crisis. But it seems unlikely that, that Europe can avert that existential conflict once, this, once we move, as I said before, out of step zero into steps one and steps two. Salvini has been quiet, but he won't stay quiet. All of these populists, so-called populists, these figures who want to concentrate power and authority and are very, very comfortable scapegoating the European Union in the name of a more national, exclusive nationalism, they're going to come out of the woodwork very quickly, very vocally, very loudly, and the longer the economic crisis drags on without a sufficient response from the leaders of the Eurozone, the Eurogroup, the European Council, the more oxygen we are giving them. 
Yeah, it does seem like I mean this is a, this is going to be on a delayed kind of reaction. I mean, I know there's there's been some talk about uh, polling shifting in in Italy in particular, where uh, Giuseppe Conte's poll numbers are way up and Salvini's poll numbers have dropped, and there's this sort of sense that uh, maybe the, there's a shift happening here. But it seems more likely to me uh, what you're seeing is you know Conte is getting. Uh, kind of a rally around the flag effect at a time of crisis. Uh, but what's going to happen, you know, if there's no relief coming from uh, the rest of the Eurozone, or if the relief comes in the form of these loans that are going to have, uh, you know, bankers from from uh, the frugal floor knocking on the door saying, where's mm-hmm. our money, where's our money, uh, the, that Salvini's bump out of this is going to come later when the economic struggles are extended and there's a sense that uh, nobody's coming to help and there's again kind of no solidarity it, it, you're it, it seems like uh, you're validating these criticisms as you I think you know as you said it sort of uh, gives people like Orban and Salvini a chance to say uh, look these groups aren't your you know aren't your friend um, and I, I I wonder, um, you know, I mean, we have, there have been a, sort of a slew of pieces now that I've, I've been seeing sort of, uh, talking about the divide between the haves and have nots and, uh, you know, analysts saying, uh, coronavirus could be the final straw for the European Union. Uh, do you, how, how far do you think, how bad could it get in a, in a worst case scenario in your mind? Um, if there's no kind of solidarity on offer from the, the wealthier states, and do you think what are the chances it'll get that bad? Versus, you know, we'll have to wait for uh, another crisis because there undoubtedly will be another one uh, to sort of push things in a in a totally new direction. I am confident that if there is not a response along the lines of a euro bond, if we go down the same route of basically uh, creating these centrifugal forces of of, of debt. Uh, in the European Union, the ones we just went through. I have no doubt in my mind that within the next two, three years, there will be renewed, large-scale political movements along these sort of right sovereignist lines uh, that someone like Salvini will have a lot to work with. And the reason why is because the you know this is not one thing. And the topography of coronavirus right now looks very flat. Everyone is suffering right now under this, with the same set of anxieties, the same set of crisis questions, the same set of variables and uncertainty. That's going to quickly change. Quickly will resolve into different national equilibria. Already we have different national equilibria emerging. The Germans, much more competent. Medical response, much more resources to invest in their economic response. They're going to start letting people out of their homes into their jobs, which only compounds the fact that, okay, they have the money to invest in their recovery and the recovery is going to start sooner. Italy with a less competent medical system, a less fiscal firepower to invest in their response is going to have to rely more heavily on security to keep people in their homes. You know, what, what, do, what politics happens then? The Germans will start to look literally like they have their foot on the necks of the Italians. You know, it's 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 not just about uh, so it's just about the the you know this goes back to that that point about whether 
plagues are these great equalizers. Of course they're not these great equalizers. And the longer this thing goes on for, the more those inequalities are going to come into sharper relief. And the more in, a, in, a, in the context of a currency zone, like the eurozone, where they literally share the same money, you know, it's going to become immediately clear that there's not a shared fate, that the whole premise of a union, currency or European in scale, is, is a fiction if they cannot actually live even remotely in the same universe of, of lived experience. So, you know, I, the, the question is just, we saw this coming in 20, 10 years ago. You could have, many people saw this coming, that if they were going to force, condemn the South to stagnation and recession, and in the Greek case, depression, that new, you know, new monsters would grow out of this politically. And they did. And they did. We have seen the uh, takeover of full countries by these authoritarian and right populist figures, right? Salvini's number skyrocketed out of this. Um, and, you know, wh why we seem unable to learn those lessons is beyond me. And why smart people are advocating for the same instruments that got us into this mess with slightly less conditionalities attached to the same instruments, to me, seems mad. And, you know, it's... I was just talking to a friend about, you know, we had the classic line from Marx about first as tragedy and then as farce. But I, there's nothing farcical about this. You know, it's first time as tragedy and then as kind of supercharged tragedy or like infuriating idiocy. I mean, there's something kind of infuriating about about watching us commit the same mistakes. One of the things that that. Um got talked about a lot during the the Greek debt crisis either you know from the perspective of Greece pulling uh, the plug on the euro and and doing you know going back to its own currency or the eurozone kind of kicking Greece out um, was you know this notion of uh, you know what happens if Greece gets booted out of the the euro or leaves the euro and and uh, in an effort to address the the situation and the the thing that kept coming back, you know, the sort of response is uh, it would be so much short-term economic pain uh, that, you know, nobody wants to do that. It would be a, you know, short-term pain, a lot of short-term pain for Greece, even maybe some short-term pain for the, the rest of the Eurozone. Um, but I wonder, like, you know, if you have a, a sense of if things get bad enough, uh, are we going to start seeing... Uh, a resurgence of kind of, uh, you know, movements or calls to at least explore the idea of, of quitting the euro. I mean, Salvini, yes. and, you know, I mean, did this, I mean, this was part of his like main <laughs> pitch for a long time. And then he sort of backed off of it in an mm. effort to go mainstream. But I wonder if that's going to come back. Look, I will be part of those movements. For the, for the <laughs> uh, so yes, you know, um, the question now is the question then, if a country has to go it alone, right? And in the Greek case, the question of solidarity was missing, not just from the total European stage, but even from the same set of Southern uh, borrower countries that were being fucked by the same set of, you know, Troika actors, right? They, none of them would even stand up for each other. This time, it's a bit, I almost said this time is different. This time feels, uh, feels like there is you, know, you can see it in the nine governments who are signing up for this proposal for a corona bond. There is more of a sense of a shared fate between these countries who are infuriated by the financial architecture of this currency union. And 
So the question then is, can those countries cohere around a proposal for revisiting that architecture of the Eurozone or hitting a detonate button and, and actually, you know, doing something, leaving? Um, but you get into these standard collective action problems. It's a really tough thing to do to wrangle multiple countries at the same time to be revisiting this stuff. But if you're a small country like Greece, yeah, you'll get screwed. Uh, and it's not just in the active, uh, sorry, in the passive voice, they'll screw you. I mean, it's not just that you can't, that it's difficult to do, it's that they have a strong interest in punishing you for leaving because they wanna stanch the bleeding and prevent a domino effect. But if you can say this isn't a domino effect, it's actually just fracture, um, you can get ahead of that. Now, you don't have to talk about necessarily the euro breaking apart. Uh, a good friend of mine, two good friends of mine, Ben Judah and Shane Vallet, put out a piece yesterday uh, in the New Statesman and now media part as well, talking about creating a euro bond through a coalition of the willing, just getting a bunch of countries together and creating a new facility where they're issuing bonds together and basically saying to the frugals, fuck you. So uh, that's also a possibility, very slim possibility, but you see it, it really comes down to um, the fact that Europe is held, Europe is held together primarily by collective action failures. <laughs> like it's just, too, it's just much, much harder to leave and much more painful and costly to leave than it is to stay. Because leaving on your own is very painful. Look no further than Brexit. And they didn't even have the euro in Brexit, right? So, yeah, I would be, I would be shocked. It is the lowest hanging fruit from Matteo Salvini to pick, that, to pick up the question of eurozone membership and throw it onto, you know, promise to throw it onto a ballot. You know, that's, this is, it doesn't take a brain genius to look at this moment and say, hmm, I think the moment might be right to <laughs> take a match to all of this dry kindling of frustration with my lack of fina financial support and the failure of solidarity in the so-called European Union. With, you know, with sort of the, the, the worst case scenario being... Um, you know, a breakup uh, either, you know, of the euro or, you know, the, the EU um, in total, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that's the worst case scenario, but keeping that, you know, sort of the, uh, the most dramatic thing that could happen here. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, we can sort of make this kind of uh, the wrapping up part of the interview, but um, as you look at um, you know, not just the response to the coronavirus, uh, although this is, you know, really highlighted a lot of the, uh, the these issues, I think. Uh, but in general, as you look at the, the way that these European institutions have responded to crisis uh, over the last several years, um, you know, we hear, especially, you know, in the United States, as we're kind of at a distance from this, the criticisms that you hear of the EU are the ones that come from the Orbans and the Salvinis, the sort of right-wing, um, anti-migrant, kind of xenophobic uh, criticisms where the main thrust is kind of a, about the free movement of people. But there are substantial criticisms and important criticisms, I think, of, of these European institutions that, that are from the left. And I, I wondered if you could maybe... Uh, talk about those and and sort of you know even if it's just like uh, a couple of the of your main kind of 
criticisms and what a better Europe would look like from from a, a left wing perspective. So I should say that I, I should go in a, in just a couple of minutes, but I'll happily answer this question as a as a wrap up. Okay. But okay, also I'll start here. Many of the criticisms that come from the left of the European institutions are ones that we have covered today, namely that they fail in form and substance to give real representation to the needs of, of Europeans. Full stop. Um, the Democracy in Europe movements, DM25, that I'm a part of. Um, you know, that, that applies to, about, we, we've long criticized the Eurogroup, which is this group of finance ministers that technically, legally does not exist, but actually holds a lot of power over the direction of the Eurozone, um, that no one knows what they say, no one knows how they make their decisions. We're talking about these fundamental questions that we've covered today, which, you know, may sound technical precisely because the managers of the European Union like to make them sound technical, but are quite fundamental in terms of how money is made and how it's distributed to people who need it. So the criticism that I have, the left, I think, has of the European Union is precisely this. There's very little democratic outlet to shape those kinds of questions, which are so obviously pertinent to people's lives at the local level, but are fundamentally made at the transnational level. Uh, so, you know, you don't, there is no body to do that. The European Parliament ostensibly is supposed to be the democratically elected body who, who makes those decisions. It is a toothless, powerless parliament. Uh, sort of a, a pino, a parliament in name only, uh, where the real power is invested in the European Council, which is the group of uh, presidents and prime ministers, the Eurogroup, as I mentioned, the finance ministers of the different countries, as well as the European Commission, the unelected technocratic body that has a lot of power over resources uh, and the instruments that are then deployed in a context of a crisis like this. So, you know, the hope out of this is that the, the euro bond sets the stage for the right kind of unification of the European Union. You know, I think it's, it's nice, it's powerful, and it's dramatic to read this thing with the kind of teleological force it deserves. Europe set out to make a European Union. It did it through fits and starts of partial, negative, and positive integration. And now we are still at this tormented point of partial integration where it's still not working. Many aspects of the integration have worked, there's no more wars in the continent, okay, there's less prejudice, people, Germans will let their children marry Polish people, whatever. But we still need, have a long way to go. The euro was a leap in the dark in terms of primarily negative integration, in terms of bringing these countries together into the same, same currency uh, and forcing them you know, to sort of align their regulatory, uh, their financial systems, whatever, to make, to make that possible, right? That was a leap in the dark. What we're saying is the corona bond is another leap in the dark. That it's not actually much of a dark, it's a pretty well-lit room, but it's a leap that creates this instrument that can finally put to rest the remnants of the centrifugal forces, the remnants of, of the temptation to retreat into the cocoon of the nation state where you can safely punch across borders and uh, point the finger and make a bogeyman out of your European neighbor, right? So the hope is that we make those instruments and that simulation of federation can set the stage for then the political federation of the European Union to actually do away with the European Commission altogether or at least make it uh, you know, a sister body fundamentally less powerful than the European Parliament that, and a European Treasury to look over the distribution of you know, how to deal with those corona bonds, for example. So it's going to take some of these institutional innovations to actually make the federation 
the quasi-federation that the European Union must be in order to survive as a union, in order to not get ripped apart by the competitive federalism that we see now, it's starting, starting to rear its head again in the United States. Because without a strong federal presence, what's happening now is the states in the United States are being forced to compete with each other with all sorts of disastrous, costly um, effects. You know, statism is rearing its head in a way we never had seen before. That's the same thing that's happening over here. And so we need to create those federal structures that allow for us to adjudicate these questions without reopening the box of north versus south, creditor versus debtor, the frugals versus the profligates, putting that finally to rest, which, of course, had no basis in general. All right. On that note, um, I think let's let's leave it there. But, um, you know, we'll uh, leave it open to, to come back and talk about this in a couple of months when we see how things are shaking out. Uh, David Adler, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, stay safe uh, and uh, talk to you soon. It's great to have me. And, oh, great to have me. I'll start that again. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's great to have you again. No, yeah. sounds like, okay. uh, <laughs> great to be here with you. And yes, I hope to return as uh, this crisis moves through its many different phases. Thanks again. Bye. Once again, I want to thank David Adler of the Democracy in Europe movement for coming on to, to talk with us. Uh, that piece, if the coronavirus sinks the Eurozone, the Frugal Four will be to blame. It's in The Guardian, March 31st. I will link to it in the show description. Uh, I do think it's going to be interesting to see how European institutions ultimately respond to this crisis and what the political fallout of that is going to be. Uh, as always, to you, thanks for listening. Please stay safe. And uh, I will talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.